Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. I uh, just want to say I had a wonderful time at Monster Bash this past June. Um, basically, it was great to meet Patrick Wayne, Caroline Monroe, Beverly Washburn again, um, Jeremy Ambler, and a whole bunch of other people, um, Wesley Yore, Kathy Coleman, and a lot of friends that I've made over the years and new friends that I've made when I was there at this past Monster Bash. Also, my son and I got to go to Ben. Got to go to the USFL championship game, and we got to see the Birmingham Stallions win in the 33-30 shootout with the Philadelphia Stars. And we both had an exciting time at Canton, Ohio, at Tom Benson Stadium. So it was a fun last couple of weekends. But now we're getting back to putting the episodes out because we're not as busy traveling all over the place. So this time you get to enjoy the interview of Jack Hill, and I hope you like it. Talk to you after the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. Um, this time, I'm going to be doing an interview of director, writer, Jack Hill, um, who's done many different movies that a lot of people know, Spider Baby, Foxy Brown, and so on. Um, how are you doing today, Mr. Hill? Well, I'm doing good. Uh, I'm living here in, uh, at the moment in, uh, in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and uh, I really like it here. Yeah, I live in um, Maryland, so you and I are not that far apart from each other on the East Coast. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> I suppose so. Um, but I was going to say, you have an interesting upbringing because, I mean, if I remember reading correctly, your mom was a music teacher and your dad worked in set design and art direction for uh, First National Pictures and Warner Brothers. So you were, as a child, being used to music and the film industry through your parents, I guess, in some ways. Yeah, you could say that. You could say that. My mother had me uh, teaching me violin and piano from a very early age, and then later on I took up other instruments on my own and uh, had a bit of a career as a professional musician until I got into making films. And um, I thought, uh, interesting, something interesting about my dad, he, uh, he designed a house um, before he was working in the movies, he designed house homes here in in Hollywood. And one of the homes that he designed, and I never discovered this until after uh, my friend passed away, but uh, a film director that I had known for quite some time, it wasn't until right after Dad that I learned that he'd been living in a house that my dad designed. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you, you finished. Yeah, yeah, it's it's officially now called the the Roland the Roland E Hill House title. It's some kind of uh, official monumental thing or something, right? But I've also read that your dad not only was an architect of houses, but he also has done something which a lot of people in the the country and the world has seen at Disneyland, the castle, right? Yeah, Sleeping Beauty's castle. So that's all true. He actually designed that. Yeah, yeah, he yeah he did. In fact, uh, after. Uh, one day, many, many, many years after he passed away, I discovered he had saved all his diaries from from all those many, many years. And I found the one where he wrote he wrote he, wrote, he just got assigned to uh, to the, to do the, the fairy castle at Disneyland. And then the next dinner was he said he had a nice meeting with Walt. <laughs> <laughs> so that so I actually got that page here. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and 
he had actually uh, he had actually met Walt Disney back in uh, at the end of the First World War. My dad was a uh, flyer aviator with the uh, Army Air Service, and um, Walt Disney was a volunteer ambulance driver. He was too young to enlist, so he volunteered with the Red Cross, and so they got acquainted then. And I guess they had known each other from various times, from all the way through until the fifties when uh, he started working for. Disney studio. That's amazing how sometimes um, there's like um, small world type things where people run into each other and, and, and down the road, they end up working together. I just found out just a couple of days ago, I just found out because I kept, um, I kept sort of in touch over the years with the, uh, with the couple, uh, the guy who, who was an actor who, uh, who bought and was living in the house, one of these houses that my dad designed, the historical one. And it turned out that he had a, he he'd been renting out the guest room to somebody who had actually had taken piano lessons from my mother when she was a hundred years old, hundred years old. Uh, but let's let's move on from that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say, yeah, it, it's it, it's interesting how all these things work out. But you went, yeah. you attended UCLA, and, correct, and left for a while, and then came back, and you got a music degree, which, as you said, led to you doing a lot of different performance. But you were a part of a symphony orchestra for different movies and doing the soundtracks. I did, yes. My favorite one was Doctor Zhivago. I can I can still hear my, hear myself on there when I hear it in the supermarket, or at least used to. <laughs> Oh, cool. What instruments? What instrument or instruments did you play for that the, the soundtrack? Yeah, I played the Hungarian cymbalum, and the composer, a French guy, I can't remember his name right now. He uh, he liked. Uh, I did uh, several of his films. He just liked the sound of it. And uh, cymbalum is like a it's like a piano with no keyboard, and you hammer on the strings with mallets. Oh, I didn't know that. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, I I was. Uh, most of the other people who who played it were were hung, Hungarians uh, who didn't know how to follow a conductor, so I, <laughs> I got all the work. Well, I mean, if you can do the job, I guess your mom taught you well, and then you applied that with in the college, and then it, yeah, I, we know. Yeah, what you got yeah. Well, I, yeah, yeah. I went. Well, I, I took a, a music uh, major, and that was my uh, degree. But I uh, I start. I wanted to originally. I wanted to compose music for for films, so I got into the film department and they took a writing course and they encouraged me to do more so I ended up doing a student film and then getting work in that area. Yeah, and, and speaking of that, when, a lot of your early work was involved with helping and working with Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, we were we were pals together in the, in the department at that time. We worked in each of the student films, yeah. Yeah, and not only still student films, but I mean, you also did Tonight for Sure, where you were oh, the cinematographer. Yeah. He was director, and I remember because I interviewed Marley Renfro, who was oh. one of the actors in it. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's a, it just came to came to mind recently because on my uh, on my uh, Facebook, a friend of a friend who's on Facebook, he's a collector of films at the University in uh, North Carolina, and uh, he sent me a copy of the of the poster for it which was <laughs> i'd long since forgotten it yeah okay so let's move on from there <laughs> well i just thought it was kind of interesting how just one person you know it's made all these little things connect you know like, like yeah well that was yeah that was one of, of several kind of dabbling around in in uh, 
nudie cuties they used to call them in those days. And uh, Francis and I both both uh, worked in that area, sort of getting a start. And then uh, and then when he started working for Roger Corman, he brought me in to, to work with him on some of the stuff he was doing. And so I did a lot of work for, for Roger Corman after that. And what was it like working for Roger Corman? Uh, <laughs> mixed, mixed. It was the the good thing about it. The good thing about it was that he would just throw you in and let you do it, and not not worry about whether you were capable or not. And uh, he just had an instinct for for for, for people, and uh, and he he would not interfere. You know, he would once once he gave you something to do, he would just leave you to it unless you really were messing up. And uh, the bad side of it is, uh, well, let me see. <laughs> uh, how do I count? The, let me count the ways. Let's move on from that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have to go into the negative parts. Of it, but Yeah, well, mostly with, with dollar signs, let's put it that way. Well, he, I mean, he was definitely somebody that um, made sure that things were on a certain budget. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I, I know in some of your films that you did with Corman, you got to – work with Jack Nicholson and Dick Miller. And I don't know if you have um, any memories working with those two. Yeah. 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 I worked, I didn't really, yeah, I worked with them a little bit. I did, uh, uh, a lot of the stuff that we shot there. I worked uh, with Dick Miller, but Jack was, was no longer, uh, on it, but I worked with him later, um, dubbing dialogue. So that was my only connection with him at the time. Okay. But, but that was, a. You're talking about the the terror with Boris Karloff. Yeah. Let me just let me just add for the for the fun of it. Boris Karloff had worked with Roger, and many many years or some years later, as you probably know, I did four pictures for a Mexican company with Boris Karloff, so I had a chance to to get to know him a little bit. And he he said, Roger asked him about Roger Corman. He said. I don't want to hear that man's name spoken in my presence. <laughs> okay, so you can figure that out. That's enough on that one. But what was it like? Because I mean, you did you, you did the U.S. scenes for the Mexican movies, the, the last four movies of Boris Karloff, and um, yeah, I believe they were. Yeah. And what was it like working yeah, it was, with it was, the it, master of horror? Yeah. Yeah, he he was uh, he dying. He he was dying from emphysema, and he had oxygen with him in there and he would sit in the chair with the oxygen and when he had a, some action scene or something he'd get up and do his action and then he'd come back and sit down and breathing the oxygen it was uh, sad but boy he was a, he did it he was right there yeah, that's everything I've read he was always a true professional and um, he would like tell people like just because you see me like this doesn't mean this is the way I'm going to be performing he would just save it all for when he had to perform mm, yeah well I don't know um, uh, he certainly certainly did a good job with with me. He just was right on there with everything. Excellent. And um, all this stuff led up to you eventually starting to do your own work with writing, directing, and I think the first film I want to bring up that you were I really love, Spider Baby, which I know you I think you started you filmed it in '64 and it took several years for it to come out. Yeah, it got involved in litigation. With the, uh, the producers, they ran out of money and had to bring in other people, and then it was really an awful, awful story. They 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 got panicked after it was done and wanted to uh, to eliminate the whole uh, 
opening sequence, and uh, then of course nobody could could understand it. So it was vaulted up and put away for for several years until um, let me see. I don't know what happened. Well, that's that, that's another story. We we can get into it uh, down the line if you like. It, it was just basically locked up from from litigation, and uh, because they they went they went into bankruptcy, uh-huh. and. Uh, and it was just locked locked up in the lab, and uh, I finally were able to get the negative, uh, get possession of the negative, thanks to um, Quentin Tarantino and uh, Harvey Harvey Weinberg. They it just so happened that the lab that had that had the negative, and wouldn't let anybody touch it, uh, were doing all of the work for uh, for Miramax, and so so he. Uh, he just uh, Weinstein. He just called him, asked him to give me the negative, and they did. So uh, I have him to thank for the fact that it can be seen. Well, that the Motion Picture Academy was able to do a restoration in 35 millimeter and make really high def um, transfers. So that, that that's cutting a long story short. And where did you get the idea? For Spider Baby, or as also, I think it was, before it became Spider Baby, was the maddest story ever told. What was the. Um... Well, that's the alternate title. The original title was uh, Cannibal Orgy, or The Maddest Story Ever Told. See, there was a big movie out called The Greatest Story Ever Told. And so this was supposed to be kind of a joke, but that didn't. <laughs> After The Greatest Story Ever Told was no longer around, it was, wasn't. So anyway, it wasn't, didn't make sense. So. Uh, Oh, the distributor, the distributor who who actually got the possession of the distribution rights back uh, right after it got out of um, out of the uh, bankruptcy thing. Uh, he had been the original distributor on it, and so he um, uh, he took it over and he restored the part that the producers had cut out and uh, retitled it. He's the guy who came up with the term with the name Spider Baby. So he was he was really a David Hewitt is his name. He was uh, he directed some of his own movies. Also, he had a little distribution company, but uh, he was came up with that title and uh, shows you uh, he was a, a genius at things like that. He was right on. He was also my connection. <laughs> <laughs> but what what came up? How did you come up with the idea for the, the story itself? Like, what was did you was it something that um you came to you in a dream? Was it something that you just read somewhere, or is it just the happenstance? You really want to know? I was smoking a lot of weed. That's fine. <laughs> that's the only explanation I can give you. It just came up. That's the same answer that Beverly Washburn gave me when I when the, the or she said that you came up that. So it's it's the same. I was just wondering if that was the only or there was something more to it or was it just a quote? Oh. But obviously, it's true. <laughs> Did I ever tell her that? Oh, that's I don't remember that. Okay, <laughs> I don't know. I think she said Maybe it was going one of the, we were casting. when you were doing sorry, one of the Q and A's. When you were doing one of the Q and A's, somebody asked you that question, and she said that was your answer. I think that's probably right. Yeah, I don't remember all the Q and A's I've done. But um, how did Beverly Washburn get involved? Was it was it did you find her or did somebody else find her? And and no, the guy who was my production manager, uh, his name I can't recall right now. Uh, his his wife was was Mary Mitchell, who was in, in the movie, and. Um, he knew her. He he just he knew her. For, I guess they were neighbors or something. But he uh, he knew her and recommended her. So that's how we found her. Oh, excellent choice! And 
and Lon yeah. Chaney Jr. was just it, it, it's one of his best performances. I mean, uh, during this movie, he, he really did a lot of work in it. How did, how did you get um, Lon Chaney involved? That's a good story. We called his uh, agent, and uh, they sent him the script, and his agent came back with uh, basically a price that the producer simply couldn't afford to pay. The budget was only $55,000. Uh, the budget was a little less than that. Um, that's what it cost. And the um, uh, agent was very firm, you know, that... Uh, no, we can't. They can't do it for for less than that. And uh, so, so we so we sat around. We said, well, let's see. Maybe we could get John Carradine. And it just so happened that the same agent, John Carradine, had the same agent. <laughs> when they called back and asked if we could see, talk about John Carradine, we got a call right back and said, Lon will do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those little miracles that happens sometimes. Good luck. And w- and what was it like working with him on the set? Just wonderful. I really learned. I, I watched him closely. I, re, I really learned uh, a lot about uh, uh, a few important things about directing, about act, about playing. And um, the interesting thing about that was that I didn't, I didn't know until afterwards that, uh, that well, he, he was an alcoholic pretty much at that time, mm-hmm. and uh, he really so badly wanted to do this and do it well. He stayed on the wagon for the whole. Uh, Schedule. So I saw it. It was only much later that I learned that that uh, the, that orange that he had for a snack in the afternoon was spiked with vodka, but it didn't show. You follow me? Yep, I got I got what you're saying. He he had his little <laughs> okay. fix and uh, was able to keep himself um, from from going yeah, into total. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't I didn't know it at, at the time, but because he, he kind of waited until the the, the the rest of the day was I, I don't know. Any, anyway, I I, find, I learned that from Sid Haig who. who was got very friendly with him, and and Sid Haig is in just about every one of your movies. It seems like, and I've obviously you two must have met early on and hit a, and had a great relationship. Uh, what was yeah. it like working with? I yeah. mean, with Sid because you 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 had him in almost everything. Well, he was in my student film at UCLA. That was the first film he work he did, and uh, I just I I, I wrote roles especially for him because I knew his personality so well and I knew he could do so many things and uh, Spider Baby was uh, the first uh, real real theatrical movie that we did together and uh, he really worked very hard at it and uh, so I, I tried to find to use him in completely different types of characters in the different movies that, uh, that I used him in. Well, he he definitely gave it as I mean you, you could tell he he put it all out there I mean it's 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 an amazing performance. He was a very good actor. And um, the other the actor I want when to bring up Jill Banner, um, who sadly died so tra- you know tra- died so tragically young, playing the other sister, uh, right? The Beverly Washburn's character. The two of them had such great chemistry, of being yeah, ev- uh, not evil but um, twisted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because Beverly Washburn had been an actor for, been working in movies for, for many years since she was a child. And Jill had, this is the first thing she had ever done. But I just felt that she just had a, had a natural part and uh, she worked very hard at it. I mean, she really worked hard at developing uh, what she wanted to do and everything. And I hardly had to give her any direction at all. I just let her run. And the both of them played off of each other so well. I just, okay, go, you know, <laughs> do it. And uh, it worked out beautifully, I think. And the music, the song, 
and the music. Did you come up with that, or did somebody else? What the music? Yes, Ronnie Stein. Ronnie Stein wrote to me. He did. He did. Uh, I knew him from. He he did a lot of Roger Corman movies. He was an excellent, excellent composer, and he loved the he loved the picture and really wanted to really enjoyed doing it. Because the soundtrack to it is just the sound of it is is so cool. I mean, you know, it, it, I don't, it's just hard to say when you hear it. It fits the movie very well. Yeah. Well, he uh, it was good. That's all I can say. And, and, and speaking of movies of, and, and music that had a lot of music going on with it, Pit Stop is another movie that you did a couple of years later, or a few years later. It was also, when I, when I was watching it, it had, um, when I started the movie, it said The Winner. So originally, was it titled The Winner, then it get changed to Pit Stop later on? Yeah, yeah. The original movie was, uh, was called The Winner. And um, uh, the, the release that, that I have out uh, through Arrow, Arrow Films, in England, they uh, I had the original print, which had the original title, and, and so they released it uh, on home video with uh, Blu-ray with that uh, with that original title because I didn't have a, a print with uh, a later print. And how, how did you come up with the idea of doing the movie? Because I mean, it, the figure eight racing. This is the first and only, this is the only time I've ever known that there was such a thing as figure eight racing. Watching the movie because it's in it's in there so prominently. Yeah, well, when I. When I, uh, Roger uh, Corman, they financed the thing. Well, he partly financed it. If I financed it with, uh, well, that, that's another story. Um, he, he, he said, he, he, he saw a movie that I had done with, um, with, uh, John Lamb, and I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's, it's one of those things that I, <laughs> if there's anything I don't want to talk about, that would be it. I can't think of what it's called right now. And anyway, it was done for such a low price that he said, Jack, he said, if you could, if you could do this uh, on a car racing picture, we can do it. And so I just happened to find discover this uh, figure eight racing, which I thought I got to do this in a movie because who knows how long this this art form or whatever you call it will will be around. And, and particularly in over overseas and foreign, they just think this is like America. You know, <laughs> it's just absolutely nuts. So. And so I really, really found I thought this would be a really historical thing to have this on film. And the uh, the downside of it all was that there was all nighttime racing, and so we had to use a super high speed black and white film. You couldn't do it in color. And uh, by the time the film was done, because there were delays in post production, the drive-in uh, theaters were all advertising all color policies. So it can only play as a second feature. Uh, so it just missed that window period by by um, like a year or two. Yeah, yeah. It was a big delay in doing the sound effects. Well, you can imagine if you see the picture, the sound effects is a humongous job with all of the cars and everything. Yeah. And, and that one, Brian Dunleavy plays the um, the person who gets the who, who is in control of the racers who basically wants certain personalities. He wants winners at all costs. And what was it like working with Mr. Dunleavy? It was, it was great. He's a guy who just, he knows what to do. He comes in and he does it. And uh, uh, the interesting part of it was that uh, uh, Roger Corman, he, he said, we, we need somebody who's a famous and known actor and who really needs a job. That's the way Roger would work. You know, he'd find somebody. And in uh, Brian's case, he was in, he had a tax problem. So we offered to pay him in advance <laughs> for three days' work. And uh, he was happy to do it. He was a really nice guy, and I really liked him. And I never had a chance to get close to him because, you know, we did 
three days in and out, bang, bang, bang. And uh, but he did exactly what he was supposed to do, and uh, so we were all very happy with him. I don't think his name in the picture, uh, especially nowadays, uh, does any helps anything for it. But it did then. Well. It did. When I saw him, I was like, you know, being a horror fan too. It was like right away I knew, oh, Brian Denlevy, and, and you know, from different things that he's done in the past. Yeah, well, I, maybe his earlier films are more familiar with people now than they were back then before they had uh, video. And again, Sid Haig is in there playing Hawk, and uh, I love it because he's he's antagonistic. He's got the ego, a totally different character than he had in Spider Baby, and he was he was really bringing where you you, you didn't like this guy. But you, you did like the guy. It was kind of interesting because he had that ego. Yeah. I, I tried to create that character. and I wrote the character and he created it perfectly just as I had imagined. No, no, I, I think I, uh, with a couple of exceptions, I, I well, maybe one exception, I wrote different, completely different types of characters for Sid. One of them, he was an Armenian hitman and he was really perfect with the accent because he really was Armenian. <laughs> the other was... was uh, a good old boy in a bar, yeah. So he he played completely different characters, and I really enjoyed working with him. Now, I mean, writing, I wrote specifically for him. Well, you could tell he, he had some great dialogue, and um, I was wondering, film-wise, what the car, the racing scenes, when you're filming the actors in the cars, um, how did you go about doing that? Because I know you did it a little differently than most people think how it's normally done. Well, it's normally done with a process screen, uh, in those days, that's pretty much the only way you could do it. And everybody thought, and I think it's the people who ran the studios that did the process didn't want you to know about it. But the fact is that uh, if you used a um, theatrical, see, I don't know if you understand this, maybe your viewers don't understand, to, to use a process screen, that means you've got a projector going behind the screen and uh, from the back, and your actors are standing out in front of the screen, so it looks like they're in whatever the scene uh, behind them uh, is. But in order to do that, they, they always thought that the projector uh, for the screen had to be synchronized with the camera taking the movie because they got 28 frames a second and that means that the shutter is is closed uh, and they always they always uh, 24 times a second <laughs> which which means that if the projector at the same speed isn't isn't synchronized with the camera you you would have black spaces you wouldn't be able to do it well it turned out that ain't necessarily so it turned out if it, we used a theatrical projector it has a double bladed shutter and, uh, well, to make a long story short, um, the exposure in one is always not the exposure in the other. But because it's a double-bladed shutter, um, it comes out that it always adds up to 100%. So we, we, we use that. We put the, put the projector in the cameraman's uh, bedroom in his apartment and uh, projected it through the window into a mirror. And from then on to the, to the, um, to the screen... Uh, behind the actors in the car, and then we we ran the footage that we made on the at the racetrack in there, and so it looks like you see the race going on behind them. I, I find that interesting, you know, myself, and it was just because you know how you people sometimes think, oh, it, it can't work because this is the way it must be done, and then there's people like yourself that are like, well, and with other people, let's work around it. Like, can we do it this other way? And then you come up with inventive ways to uh, as workarounds. Yeah. 
Well, that's what you needed to do when you worked for Roger Corman. Well, that's uh, working for Roger Corman. That's a great training because he just says, "Oh, you got to do this." <laughs> and you get, how the heck am I going to figure out a way to do it? You know, I mean, I did so many, uh, like what we call inserts, little little pieces that, that put things together and um, found ways of doing things that you would never normally uh, think of. And when you see it on the screen, you think it's real. It, it definitely worked, and it worked better than you see with a lot of the car scenes or p- sceneries going by. It, it, it fit a lot better than movies at that same time frame and even after yeah well uh, in, in recent years it's been um, very interesting uh, uh, film festivals and other things uh, have uh, places in, in, in Europe which is what I, I always imagined that Europeans would just find this so goofy uh, and, and now they're, lately they've been screening it at various places in Europe I got a request for it to be screening in Vienna for a film festival there and I had Boy, they had a program about movies made in Los Angeles, and this was one they featured there. <laughs> I don't know; doesn't really look like L.A. much, but it is. Now, uh, the lead character, the one who plays the winner, or Rick Bowman, Richard Davalos. Um, yeah, he had that um, Steve McQueen type vibe going on. Yeah. Is well, that, maybe, is that, yeah. Is that something you were trying to, did you tell him to do, or is it something he brought to you? And I'm not sure how much, like, it sounds like you can no, actors I, a no, lot of he, No, I just, I just let him read the script, and he liked it, and he liked the character, and and uh, basically I just let him fly with it. I thought he was perfect. And he and Sid worked, played very well, worked very well together. Oh, definitely. And, and, for, and for people that haven't seen the movie, I recommend you see the movie because he's – He's basically a person who will do what it takes to win. He wants to win at almost almost at all cost. You know, he's just driven to win. Yeah, right. Yeah. And the repercussions that come with it, um, it play out as the movie goes along. Yeah. Now, the, the next your next few films are a departure from the um, the prior films that we talked about, and uh, you know, you start to go to things like the Big Dollhouse and Coffee and Foxy Brown. And you know, some people call it the exploitation type movies or whatever, but you 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 definitely hit to a different direction. Well, yeah, exploit they call it exploitation films. Although exploitation films, it's uh, it's a term that kind of makes you know it's a term that sounds kind of low lowbrow, but um, ex- so the films played uh, many of them films and, and mine played uh, top of the bill when they were released and uh, did grosses just as well as some of the big pictures. In fact, uh, coffee, when it uh, hit the theaters, it, uh, it opened fairly well, but not great. And in the second week, it was number one in the box office, became all the big movies and just word of mouth. And that's, that's what I like to remember about it. I think people like to pigeonhole certain things. Everybody likes to put certain things at a certain topic. And I think movies that were, being beaten, let's say by coffee and other ones, some of the movie studios are like, well, we got to give this a certain name to make it le- um, not as appealing to the general population. So our films do better. So sometimes I think people come up with these terms as a way to help market their stuff up. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's the, uh, the trade papers came up with that. And some, I know black exploitation, I'm sure was uh, the invention of some clever writer and Hollywood reporter. One of those papers came up with that one. And it's kind of demeaning, but uh, a lot of things that were 
demeaning at the time are now considered really, um, how can I put it, uh, part of the culture. That's why they call them cult films, I guess. <laughs> cult culture, I don't know. Well, yeah, you definitely have. I mean, a lot of your films are considered cult favorites, and I, I to me, yeah. I just enjoy them. You know, they're fun to watch. And if, if I understand it, you discovered Pam Greer. You could say that, yeah. How, how did you find her? Like, uh, did, did she come to you, um, an audition, or is it some somewhere you saw her doing something and you decided you wanted to get her into the movies? No, I can tell you exactly how it happened. We were casting the Big Dollhouse, which was a uh, we needed a cast of. Uh, of uh, several uh, young women, um, group of young women. And uh, so we put out what they used to call a cattle call. We would tell agents what we wanted, and they would send over people that they thought would, would fit. And I had uh, we had quite a few actresses come in, and I, don't know, I had some of them read together in a group to see how they played off of each other. And she just she just came in as part of the cattle call, and... Uh, and um, the minute I started talking to her, I thought she had something that we used to call authority in a player, which means when they're on the screen, you look at them or him or her. And uh, she had never done anything except to walk on in the Russ Meyer movie. And, but she was serious. We really worked at it, and I felt that she could handle it, and uh, she practically stole the show. Ended up singing the title song, by the way, and at, when the picture played in theaters in the black neighborhoods, people, somebody would go in with a recorder, tape recorder, and record the, her singing the title song, and they would play it on the radio stations. That, that's pretty impressive. And yeah, Emma, I was impressed. I, I'll say, I mean, yeah, it's like it's because you know, I was I was very young then, so I didn't see these movies until later in life. But it's just. Uh-huh. Um, but again, you know, it, she, she, she she had a wonderful singing voice, and the composer of the of the score I can't think of his name right now. Uh, he was a very popular uh, composer. liked really liked her so much that he really wrote wrote the song for her, and had her sing it. It was his idea, and she had a wonderful singing voice. And I thought it was odd that nobody ever in none of the movies that she did in later years took advantage of her great ability to sing. That is a shame. I guess, well, I guess some people, you know, sometimes actors get typecast in certain roles and she was typecast as the tough action hero. Yeah. 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 Which is always amazing to me when you, you'll sometimes hear people talk in the last several years about, Oh, we, there's never been a tough female hero. And I'm like, uh, yes, there has. <laughs> just, just go- well, there haven't, there's never been one that had, had so many, I mean, who had become that, that, that's strong. I mean, who would really, um, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just think Pam Greer right away. I mean, you know, she did many different yeah. movies and, and she still has the rep. I mean, people still cast her. I mean, like Jackie Brown by Quentin Tarantino, they're still casting her as the tough and people buy it. You just, it's just the way we all believe her. I mean, you know, she does such a great job acting, but she's just yeah. kind of owned the screen and you don't mess with her. Yeah. Right. That's what's called authority. Yeah. And Catherine Loder, who's in a couple of your movies, I noticed, I think this is the first one I noticed that she was in also the same thing with the cattle call when, and you noticed her and, and, and put her into the big dog. No, in her case, I had no, in her case, I had seen her in a, in a, in a, in a film and I thought, and that just struck me, she would be perfect for this. And then I worked with her again in, 
Foxy Brown, and but she she passed away not long after that. Yeah, she also was somebody who died tragically young. I mean, uh, I think at age thirty eight. Yeah. It's just it's just sad yeah. sometimes. Some people leave us too soon. Yeah, yeah. casting it was the studio. They had other people that they were interested in casting, and uh, and I. When they saw what she did with the role, they, they knew I had done it right. <laughs> oh, she's definitely memorable, and especially in, in Foxy Brown. Yeah, yeah. Um, coffee is, I, I don't know, I, I find it takes Pam Breer and just puts her right up to the forefront, you know, where she's getting revenge and she's doing all this stuff. I, I just really enjoy that movie, and, and I know you, I believe you wrote and directed it, and what were your ideas when you when you write these things? Where where did they come from? Well, in this case, um, I had uh, for the first time I actually had an agent <laughs> with a, with a major agency, and he was a young guy, just kind of starting out, and uh, he uh, he proposed he said uh, I don't know exactly how, but I guess he. Um, they had a production at AIP, Larry Gordon. I guess he knew him, and he suggested that they talk to me about doing a picture. And um, so that's how I got into it. And I met with uh, Larry Gordon, and I uh, I was really thinking, gosh, now here I am with a real studio. I can really do something. And he, Larry said, we want a, a picture about a black black woman's revenge where she kills the shit out of two guys in the opening scene, and my heart just sank. I didn't want. To, I thought I didn't know how to do a black picture, and I, and I, I, I didn't wouldn't know where to start with it and everything. But I said, but it gave me a chance to work with Pam Greer. And the studio wasn't even sure that they wanted to head of the people that they liked, but I, I just nailed it with them. She's the only one who can do it. I wrote it specifically for her. She uh, collaborated. I collaborated with her on a lot of parts of the screenplay. So the rest is, you know, history, as they say. Oh, yeah, she definitely made sure that one guy's head was history in that opening scene. I mean, that was, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you an interesting story about that. I had, uh, how can I put this? Uh, When I did the big dollhouse, I had a, a scene in there where, where and this was not a scene. This was not a script that I originally wrote, although I did a lot of work on it when we were shooting. They had a scene where the girl was supposed to be strapped naked on her back on this table, and they had this like they bit in the pendulum. Only instead of a, an axe, there was a cobra, poisonous cobra, swinging down. And I thought, now, now how are how we're going to do this? Because no, no actress is going to lie there with a, a, a real cobra swinging. So I, I used a I used a plexiglass sheet so that the uh, she'd be protected in case the snake fell off or something. And I had gotten that idea from seeing a James Bond movie where James Bond was lying in a bed, bare-chested, at least partly naked, and this poisonous, apparently poisonous spider, tarantula, was crawling over his chest. And I looked very carefully, and I noticed that there was a little dislocation in the movement of the spider, and I said, that spider is on a sheet of plastic, not on its skin. And that's where I got the idea for that. So when we did coffee, and this had never, I had never seen this done before, I wanted to have the shotgun aimed right straight in front of the actress's face. Uh, now, normally, 
normally, I mean, you, well, we used the stunt woman for 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 a uh, stunt man for not the actress, stunt man for it, and um, put a uh, plexiglass sheet in front of his face so that he wouldn't get injured by the the blast from from the shotgun. And uh, I'd never seen that done before, but it worked absolutely primo. And then we wired up the back of the guy's head with with little <laughs> with um, air, air compression to to make it look like his brains are blowing out. And that scene is, has become, I mean, I, at film festivals and things like that where people just really remember that scene, like, you know, and and uh, um, Quentin Tarantino said he had never seen that done before. So, that, so people, yeah, people remember that scene. <laughs> oh, I, I remember the first time I saw it, I sat up and took notice. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to start off with a real, real shock, a real, real surprise. Well, that you did. You definitely succeeded with me, and it sounds like with a lot of other people. I was just like, yeah, Whoa. yeah, it worked, worked, primo. I, I also love Pam Greer's character's name, the last name being Coffin. You know, and, and also being a nurse. I'm thinking if I was in a hospital and I had a nurse whose last name was Coffin working on me, I'd be a little worried. Yeah, that's the idea. I'll tell you a good story about that one too. I had been in the phone uh, some sometime earlier when I was working on a movie, working on nudist films with John Lamb. I don't remember how it came about, but anyway, I had I was on a phone call uh, with, with a young woman, and we had talked a bit. And then she said, uh, "I want to tell you something." She says, "I'm coffee colored," and I never forgot that. And that's where that came from. And then they used it, you know. She, her name is Coffee, and she'll cream you, this kind of stuff in the advertising, which I thought was really, really, really bad, but I guess it worked. Yeah, sometimes the taglines of, of movies that uh, people come up with are good. Most of the time they seem average, and some of them are just like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, well, I, one of the things that I did when I was working for Roger Corman was come up with, with uh, lines like that for advertising. I'll tell you, my favorite one was a motorcycle movie. And the ad showed these um, gang of motorcyclists riding towards you, and but the uh, the tag the, the line that I wrote for it, which was actually broadcast on radio, <laughs> was "Mad dogs from hell hunting down their prey with a quarter ton of hot steel throbbing between their legs." Put on the radio, and everybody was quoting it. Well, that definitely. That Hello. Def- that definitely gets that definitely gets people like going like, whoa, what what is this? Especially on the radio. Yeah, I, I did some some pretty good taglines actually for for ads ads when I was working for Roger. Part uh, of my education. Well, I mean, it, it seems like with 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 Roger Corman, it, that you and a lot of people have to wear many different hats, which I guess in in some good ways prepares you for when you go on your own. You're used to a lot of different yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, you're used to having to come up with ideas. Now, Foxy Brown, the, the one thing I noticed between watching Coffee and Foxy Brown, and I watched them recently back-to-back, is the, the wardrobe differences between the two movies. Interesting question. When I did Coffee, I wanted her to be just really like the viewers would, would be, you know, just very, very kind of simple and... Um, how can I put it? Just kind of workmanlike, you know, nothing fancy, nothing fashionable. And I felt with Foxy Brown, Pam was in a much stronger position to ask for things that she wanted, and I just let her run with it. She wanted, she wanted to look fashionable, and have really sharp uh, wardrobe, 
and I thought it was. <laughs> I didn't think it was it was right, but I, but I was wrong because that has become over the years, many many years later, one of the features of the movie is that outrageous seventies look, and you know, oh, that she did so well. So I was wrong about that one. Yeah, she definitely. Um, pulled, well, well, not everybody's Pam Greer and can pull off the wardrobe. You know, it's correct. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but also in that movie, Antonio Fargus plays her brother Link. And he, I, I've always loved him as an actor. And, and when I was watching yeah. it this time, it dawned on me. He was, the, I, I saw him in the movie. I'm like, wait a minute. I know that guy from many different films. Yeah. And what was he like? He was really, really, really just good. I just let him kind of, kind of go with it. Cause he understood perfectly what it was all about. I had uh, I found him because I had seen him in another movie. I don't remember the title, but uh, I I thought he'd be perfect for this. So um, by by the time uh, this movie was shot, he was he was already fairly well known in the industry. So uh, I could get him, and he he really liked the role. He thought it really said something that he understood. Oh, he he definitely brought it because you 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 loved not you loved to hate him, so to speak. I mean, the ne'er do well brother. And uh, yeah. he played it perfect. Yeah, I thought so too. Now, when I, when they first called me to do this picture, um, Poxy Brown, I I had had this big success with coffee. It was one of the, the biggest hits that they, the AIP ever ever had. And so um, they really, <laughs> uh, some of the people that didn't want me around anymore because I had, uh, well, let me see if I can put it uh, Lightly, I, they had invited they had invited me to a screening of a movie that they thought was going to be one of their big major pictures, and I walked out on it uh, because I thought it was disgusting. And uh, <laughs> you don't do that. You don't walk out in a movie and then think that the company is going to hire you back again. You're going to all hate you. But apparently, Sam Arkoff, the head of the company, he was just only interested in the money and. And they made an awful lot of money on coffee, so I'm sure he told them they had to get me back. And uh, so that's how that happened. And I had very little time to come up with a script on it because I guess it was kind of a last-minute decision and uh, on their part. So I really had to kind of throw, throw together a lot of ideas that I had rejected for the earlier picture and worked it out. And I worked with Pam, and I got some good ideas uh, from her. And... Um, but I, I never, you know, it's basically almost a, a, a remake of, the, of, of Coffee in, in many ways because I just didn't really have the time that I had had before. And uh, the, the executives in the studio, they really, really, some of them really disliked me because of, uh, of me walking out of what they thought was their biggest movie. And actually, Coffee actually ended up making the studio more. And, uh, that's that's the worst thing you can do, you know. I mean, when you could, <laughs> your picture beats theirs. You know what I mean? Uh, and so, uh, just holding kind of at the last minute, I guess the, uh, my hunch is Sam Markov told me to get me back and do a sequel. So I'd had very very little time to to work out a, a good script. But the irony of all that is that over the years, it's become a much much more popular cult film. I mean, I know this because the residuals I get on it are much higher than the ones on Coffee, which is sad because Coffee, I think, is a really, really kind of a good movie. It's well done, well scripted and worked out and Foxy is kind of thrown together. Just, I just tried to make a lot of outrageous scenes in it, you know, to, 
to cover up the lack of a really good good story. <laughs> and it, it worked. Yeah. I mean, I I got uh, there was a critic. I think not the New Yorker. I think New York Times maybe. Oh no, the L.A. Yeah, L.A. Times critic who who watched in a in a drive-in theater because I'll tell you that um, critics who watch a black film in a drive-in theater they're afraid to go to the theater. Um, the black the black audiences in the theaters are very rowdy. They can talk back to the movie and stand up and shout. And I witnessed this myself. And so I can understand why the reviewers <laughs> were. But he said that uh, he said uh, that the audiences in the in the theater blew their horns at every every violent moment or dirty line or something in the picture. And I thought that was just great. The audience in the theater shout back at the movie, and the audience in the drive-in blow the horns. I thought that was really wonderful. That's when you know you you don't a- get. Yeah, go ahead. Now you know you had a good movie when when the audience is just reacting right there with it. Yeah, well, that that audience, that particular audience, like to do that. You don't get that with a Walt Disney movie. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think think Foxy Brown would ever be in a Walt Disney movie. (laughs) No, no, but I mean, that audience reaction, that's what I call a real catharsis. Yes, definitely. Catharsis, blowing your horn in the driving. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. One of the scenes I love in Foxy Brown is the the barroom fight scene. Yeah, and I always love okay. I'll, I'll give you I'll, I'll give you a good one on that one. I just came across fairly recently. A guy okay. wrote a book. Uh, he was writing a book about uh, black exploitation movies, and he said about this. And he said the barroom says where the where the uh, uh, lesbian bar where the customers would make the teamsters look like the Rockettes. Yeah, it that, that, definitely was a tough part. You're familiar with the Rockettes, right? You yes, know the Rockettes? Oh, I know the Rockettes. Yeah, okay, well, he says, he says, they make the teams just look like the Rockettes. I thought that was a wonderful description. Okay. Oh, I loved it. I, I love the line where the one who was, was told, um, the one the one lady was told to keep to keep them there because the um, the gangsters were coming. Yeah. And yeah. when Foxy Brown, Pam Grier's character, is trying to take the other woman out, and said, so let's get out of the bar. She's like, oh, you're not doing it. And eventually she warned her. So it's, I got to warn you. I'm, I'm, I know karate. I'm deadly. And then I love it. She she I got a black belt. I got a black belt in karate. And, and she nails it. And she said, I got a black belt in, in bar, bar stools. That's the line you're thinking of. Yes, it was great. I was just like, boom. Yeah. It was, I mean, you're talking about furniture being broken. I mean, this was a, this was an all out brawl i mean I well that's yeah. i wanted to do i wanted to do a real hollywood uh, western bar scene that they used to see all the time in in in, in westerns in a lesbian bar i thought that would just really make the movie and it it did <laughs> it, it did for me and actually that was what i was thinking of was the western bar fight scenes that you'd always see like yeah. in, in the western movies you did you yeah i was right there with you <laughs> yeah yeah thank you <laughs> Well, that's what I tried to do with that picture. I thought I didn't really have a, a good script able to work out, so I just tried to load it with memorable scenes that uh, people would talk about. You got to see this movie because blah blah blah. That's the way I looked at it. Well, it 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 definitely works, and I think that may be why a lot of people, as you've seen with the residuals, go to Foxy Brown because there's there's things where they could put on with a group of friends at a party, and they could yeah. be like everybody, hey hey, it's getting to the scene, and everybody can just. Get in there and it's really enjoy it. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but that sounds sounds makes sense. 
Now, there's two other movies that you directed I wanted to talk about. One is um, Switchblade Sisters, yeah. which, is, which is pretty, which is to me, uh, it's, the, it's the girl gang. They got the blades. They're the fighters. It, it's kind of like um, the warriors, but switched in roles, you know, with, with, with the gang type thing going on. And what was it like doing that movie? Because it, it, was, it, was, it was kind of an interesting mix. You know, for 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 what you yeah, yeah, we were very highly stylized, which maybe worked against it. But I wouldn't want to skip over the swinging cheerleaders because that's a movie that I really oh. feel kind of proud of. It really, it really worked well, and it was a it was a huge hit, and uh, at the time, and it was a chance to do some some real kind of almost out and out comedy, and how can I say it was a hmm, higher level. <laughs> I don't know. That's all I need to say about it. Well, the reason I, the reason oh, I was I, skipping it, I didn't have a chance to see it, and I would feel, you know, like oh. I feel weird. But I did get to see the trailer, and there's 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 the one scene in the trailer where everybody's coming for the door, and and they're hitting this one guy, and they're all like, it's like a stomach punch, head punch, and everybody that comes through, stomach punches him and oh, head yeah. punches him. I, I, I was la- I was yeah. laughing at that scene. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, this, uh, the movie's full of uh, good stuff like that. You get a chance to see it. See it. Oh, I do want to because I know it has Colleen Camp in it, and I like Colleen Camp, so I'm, I'm looking. Yeah, forward to she that. was very good. She was. She was. She was the only girl in the cast whose tits you don't see. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be a used to be a, a a requirement of the genre that you get bare breasts uh, in the movie, and uh, so I tried to make it fun. Never mind. Move on. Well, well, I was saying, you know, it's hard for me to talk because I haven't really seen about it. So, but that, that was, yeah. but, but I'm, I'm looking forward to try to, to see all your work. And it, it, it's just one of a few that I haven't seen. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really kind of a nice kind of clean comedy type of sexy comedy. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, so um, the, the, the switchblade sisters, um, that one was interesting in that you had Kitty Bruce, who was Lenny Bruce's daughter, who you knew from back in your music days before you started yeah, the cinema? Yeah, when she was, I, I knew him when when they had to, when she was just a baby. She lived living in a hotel that a friend of mine, his father was the manager of the hotel, so I used to go there quite often. And I was just thinking, you know, with the, the fight scenes and the other scenes going on, and I love Monica Gale with the patch. It's just so iconic. It, it, it's, it's always the one I'm drawn to because when you see her, you see that patch there, and it's just like I don't want to mess with. You, for some reason, you don't want to mess with anybody that's in these type of movies that has an eye patch. <laughs> <laughs> I was thought of it that way, but yeah. <laughs> but, but speaking of fight scenes, I, I think this is one of the few movies, maybe the only movie I've seen where it has the the fight scene on roller skates. Yeah, I went to a screening uh, back in the at the time when Quentin Tarantino was promoting the movie. A screening, uh, I think it was Seattle or someplace, and the people in the audience must have seen it because when the scene opened up in the roller rink, they all burst into applause. And, and what gave you the idea, like when when you were doing this, to, to, to put the scene in the roller skates? Was it calls it you know that time of the I don't know. I, I don't know. Skating. I just wanted I just wanted to do something different and unusual that they haven't seen before. And when I was very young, I used to go to roller rinks and skate a lot. <clears throat> and uh, I just had the feeling, hey, this might be good because they don't they hardly have that anymore. Roller rinks, very, at least not that I knew of. Although the place we shot it, it was a roller rink where they really do have it. But it wasn't as popular as it used to be, so I thought, well, let me just shoot a big scene in a roller rink. 
and, and for listeners, it works well, and, and you got to see this movie. It, it's 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 I don't know, I just I just enjoy it. It's it's one of those fun things. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. It was not. It was a flop at its time when it was first released. People didn't know what to make of it. And sometimes that happens but, with films. They don't know what to make of it, or it comes out at a, a, yeah. an awkward time where people you know, yeah. ahead of its time, or maybe just behind its time. I think this one was a, was ahead of its time. Yeah, maybe so. I don't know, but it was kind of highly stylized, and maybe that's uh, maybe people were expecting something realistic about <laughs> real street gangs. I don't know. Anyway, I'm so happy to see that it's a big cult favorite now. Now, the the last movie that you're credited as directing, uh, I'm, I always I saw this years and years ago, so it's been a while since I've seen it. But I remember seeing it because I always liked, you know, fantasy movies like Conan the Barbarian, or Sorceress, you mean? Sorcer- yeah, Sorceress. Um, yeah, if there was anything I wouldn't want to talk about, that would be it because it was such a terrible experience. But um, shooting in Mexico, I'll give just one quick example. We're shooting in Mexico. We had uh, it was nice because the, the people there working with it really liked the script and they liked the whole thing of doing it, the fantasy and all this and that. And one day we were scheduled. We were uh, we had a shoot scheduled for exterior in the morning, and we were supposed to go back into the sound stage on the afternoon. And the sound stage had been all rigged up, all the lights set and everything ready to go. And when we got there, it was empty. Dino De Laurentiis had taken over. The, the, all the equipment for shooting his picture Dune. That's the kind of stuff we had to put up with. That's just amazing. Like some people just take over everything and do that. But yeah, well, Dino De Laurentiis, he, you know, he's there. You, if he wants something, it doesn't matter. He just gets it. <laughs> I, I was very happy that it, that it really was a flop. Well, I mean, you know, and not every work comes out the way you you anticipated going into it and stuff like that. So right, yeah, right. Well, I was working in Mexico. A lot of, a lot of difficulties like that. Now, you also wrote a couple of movies or or or, or, or scripts that became movies that you did yeah. not direct. And um, there's just really just two I would like to talk about because I've seen them in the past. And the first one, it's one I think out of the two is is my one of my favorite ones that you wrote but didn't direct. And that's Death Ship. Yes. Well, I, yeah, yeah, I did two, uh, yeah, I did two jobs for Sandy Howard, a producer at the time who was, uh, uh, producing pictures with money, uh, derived from tax, uh, credits from c- countries that wanted to help their film industry by help, help financing the movies. And he was putting together those kinds of, of deals and they had certain requirements. And, um, I wrote the uh, screenplay. And I really wanted to direct the movie, but it was Canadian picture they needed. They needed a Canadian or uh, director, and I, I kind of knew that going in. But I, anyway, um, but the uh, the screen credit. Um, <laughs> although I wrote the script, I only have a credit, a story credit on it, because um, the script had to had, had to have had to have. Uh, a credit of a Canadian writer, you see. Ah. And so um, they had to give the Canadian writer, the, he did a rewrite in the script, which I had mixed feelings about. But anyway, so he got the screen credit because um, they paid me a nice fee to, to give up the screen credit. <laughs> so <laughs> I was okay with it. I, I didn't like the project very much anyway. Well, I enjoyed it. It, it was just one of those things I never seen when I was, a teenager and it just yeah 
it worked well for me and it, it fit in. I'm not, yeah, yeah, it came out okay, but you know, it wasn't the kind of a hit that I had, had that I felt. Well, never mind. Let's move on. Yeah, the other picture, the other picture, maybe you're talking about is the uh, city on fire. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, same thing. Same producer. Um, I co-wrote the script with a with uh, another guy who has passed away since then. I can't remember his name. And um, uh, that was, uh, yeah, I just was hired as a writer. <laughs> yeah, I just find it interesting because it's like one of those, you know, this is back at the tail end of the 70s, the tail end of the disaster movies. And yeah, you have your usual um, cast of characters in the stars or the actors playing them. You know, because you have your Henry Fonda, you have your Shelley Winters, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Well, they hire them to do like two days' work on a stage, and they so they can put their name in the credits. That's what they did. Yep, and uh, yeah, the, the usual stuff they do with all those, you know, disaster things. And it was, you know, it came at. It the was end. one where they intended they intended to have a big TV audience for those things. That's mm-hmm. where they expected to get their money from TV, from television release, and uh, yeah, the city on fire. They. The climactic sequence that I wrote for the director, who I don't want to talk too badly about him because he was a great director of of Shakespeare um, (laughs) adaptations, but he didn't understand at all. Nobody, I guess, understood at all what I was describing uh, for the final scene where the the whole city's on fire and people are trying to escape. I got it from the... um, Studying the uh, the firestorms of uh, in in the war of Hamburg and uh, what's the other side Dresden, what they did and um, they didn't understand it at all. And since I wasn't there when they're shooting it, they they just completely I thought they completely messed it up. And it would have been so exciting if they had done it right. And I think that's the hardest thing for screenwriters is the director has one vision, you have a different vision and sometimes they match up and sometimes they don't when, especially if they don't understand what you're, you're, you're going for, what, we, what you were going yeah. for. But I, I thought I was, I really enjoyed talking with you about your different, what, what other things do you have anything coming up? I know you said you're working on your memoirs. Well, that's because I had a literary agent who asked me if I would like to do it. Yeah. Well, no, I, um, I, I've been uh, doing, uh, kinds of things. Uh, one project I was spending a lot of time on was um, trying to get published a, a book, which is uh, letters that my dad wrote home from from the time from uh, during the during the First World War, his training as a pilot, and then his work in France, and then studying in uh, architecture in Paris after the war. And uh, his letters his, reads like a novel. He just had a natural Flair for for writing, describing scenes, his, his crashes. He said he called a smash. Now they call it. He said he sent a souvenir of my first smash, and he had more than one smash. And uh, and then uh, his time in in Hollywood, he actually worked for. Um, he's a German director. He did Queen Kelly. Actually worked on Queen Kelly, and then uh, on from there. And he wrote these really really interesting letters and. And uh, illustrated, he made drawings all the way through, so and photographs. And uh, so now I'm, I'm working on trying to get it uh, as an online book. Well, that'd be nice because I mean, there's been a, a kind of a revival of interest in World War One in movies and other things, and it's it's it, now would be seeing the time to get it out, so it'd have a better chance of having a bigger market hit. Hopefully. But uh, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to um, 
spend okay. an hour, an hour ish with me. I'm reminiscing about your career. I mean, it's, I, I find you one of the, your, your work. A lot of it is great films. I just put in and I've, I just enjoy and smile when I'm watching them or literally blown away with certain scenes. <laughs> well, that's, that was the intention. So I'm glad it works. But thank you, sir. And, um, Listeners, join us next episode when we will be doing a movie decided by the roll of a die or another interview. Otherwise, everybody have a good day and seek out the work of Jack Hill. It's out there. You can find a lot of it is um, streaming right now and enjoy some of his movies. Yeah, it's all and everything. Everything I've done, uh, almost everything, is uh, is from from Arrow Arrow Video in uh, England. It's uh, it's all in Blu-ray and tremendous uh, uh, extras on their interviews with just about everybody. So you can uh, find those on Amazon, I believe. Well, definitely. And uh, seek them out because some of these movies have some nice pristine copies now and it, it makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. They're all, uh, Arrow did a beautiful job of, of, uh, of making uh, the, uh, the Blu-rays. Well, thank you, sir. All right, my pleasure. I hope everybody enjoyed the interview with Jack Hill. Um, I just want to let you know, if you want to leave us feedback, please email us at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave some comments on our Facebook page. I hope everybody's having a good day. Talk to you later. Bye. My name's Carpenter. I know what you want to, and you're going to get it. of your rotten life, you dope pusher. Are you sure you're not just a little black? see you crawl over here, you black trash. You want me to crawl? What are you doing? Put that down. You want to spit on me and make me crawl? Just tell me. Did this man send you to kill me? No. He didn't know nothing. Take her out and kill her. Think of all the fun I could have had with a good-looking stud like you. You really mean that? All your friends are dead. Why well, kill them all? <laughs>